This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, today, well, we have one of my favorite historians here with us. He's the Vice President for Academic Affairs of the Herzl Institute, the Director of its National Strategy Initiative, as well as the author of the absolutely fascinating, mind-blowing book, John Selden and the Western Political Tradition, which I devoured. Uh, Ophir Haivri is here, and we're going to talk about John Selden, maybe the most interesting person in human history that none of you have ever heard of. But first, uh, let's set this thing up right. We're right at the beginning of reading the Book of Numbers. And as I've said before, notwithstanding its extremely terrible brand name, the Book of Numbers is where the excitement really begins in biblical history. Because until now, we've been reading a story that only its protagonists would care about, right? The book of Genesis is all about the family of Abraham and Sarah. And while God promises that eventually all the families of the earth will be blessed in their account, that's like way in the future as far as the narrative trajectory of this book is concerned. It's basically on its own. It's basically like a family scrapbook. And even when we get to the book of Exodus and the Israelite story takes place against an international backdrop, right, in the ancient Egyptian empire, the goal is to get the Israelites out of that empire and into a desert where they can be alone with God, which is, of course, where we find them in the book of Leviticus. They're focused on building a temple by themselves. The book of Numbers is the first place where this starts to shift, because what it narrates is a generational shift. The book begins with the failures of the generation that left Egypt, their complaints about food, they're getting cold feet about traveling onward, and they ask to be brought back to Egypt, the rebellions against Moses, rebellions against Aaron. And this generation eventually decays to the point where it dies out. But then the second half of the book tells of the rise of a new generation, the generation that would enter into the land of Israel and build a new society there, one that as Numbers itself begins to explain, and the book of Deuteronomy will expand upon, is going to serve as a model to hopefully inspire all the nations of the earth. And the book of Numbers is when the people of Israel, when the Bible itself, begins that turn towards taking its place on the international stage among the family of nations. And that's actually what I want to tackle with our guest today. What does it look like for the Bible, the Jewish tradition of interpretation and learning that sprung up around it, like the Talmud and other works of rabbinic learning? What does it look like for those works and that tradition to play a foundational role, not just in Jewish life, but in thinking about the political past, present, and future of the West itself? So to unpack all of this, I brought on the historian who literally wrote the book on this question, or at least one extraordinary element of it. He's the Vice President for Academic Affairs of the Herzl Institute, the Director of its National Strategy Initiative. He's the author of John Selden and the Western Political Traditions. He's Ophir Haivri. Ophir, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. And by the way, I wanted to just note that the Book of Numbers is actually the book uh, of my parasha. At the Bar Mitzvah, a Jewish boy uh, reads a section of the, of the Pentateuch which is uh, relevant to the time he was born. And mine was the first chapter of uh, uh, Numbers, which in Hebrew is named In the Desert, which is b- far better than, than Numbers. But <laughs> Exactly. Mine was Baalotucha, so we're close. All right, so uh, the date is July 21st, 1629. And John Selden, 
one of the most distinguished members of the British Parliament of the day. And this is the 17th century. So they're like, so these are some of the most legendary parliaments ever in all of English history. So anyway, this member of parliament, John Selden, is, I believe, under house arrest by the British crown at the time. And he has a limited choice of books that he can request. Like he only gets like, I think like 14 or 19 pieces of paper total that he's allowed to write on. And he gets like two book requests. And he writes a letter to a friend of his, Robert Cotton. And this is what he says. He says, I have much time here before me. And there is in Westminster Library, the Talmud of Babylon in diverse great volumes. If it be a thing to be obtained, I would beseech you to borrow them for me. Now, the overall question this podcast is going to try and answer is why would one of the most brilliant and respected parliamentarians in the history of England, given only a few options, actually ask to be given the Babylonian Talmud, the great repository of, of Jewish rabbinic commentary on the Bible and a work of, of law and philosophy and legend? Why on earth would he ask for this? But I actually want to take a step back and set the stage here. So politically speaking, and we'll get to the theology of this and, and what's happening religiously, but politically speaking, in this era, before we get to Selden himself, right, but in this era, like the early 1600s, what's happening in English political history? Like we're building up to the English Civil War. Set the stage for us. What's going on here? Okay, so basically we look at the, the European stage and the English stage. They're connected. In the European stage, because of the repercussions of the Reformation, and a few other minor things like, like uh, finding America and like the invention of right. the printing type, printing press, sorry, and things like that. There's a whole old vo- worldview, which was the Aristotelian uh, university outlook that was crumbling down. So people started to come up with all kinds of theories and ideas. How should we understand the world? Here, there's a whole continent there we never heard about. And there are some of our religious certainties are being questioned. We, we, we used to be all of us Catholics. Now the, we're, some of our Calvinists, some Lutherans, so on and so forth. And this creates not only a, a religious or geographic or historical problem, but basically it's, I would say, uh, everything blows up. Basically people don't know, should I actually uh, listen to the king of my country if the king is a Lutheran and I'm a Catholic? Or... There are international laws of war, just war, how to treat prisoners. But if they're Catholic, if they're Protestants, maybe they're they're not uh, allowed the same traditional rights and so on and so forth. So basically, you know, philosophers try to answer these questions on the philosophical level, but it has repercussions on the very political level because people are starting to ask, you know, when is a rebellion a just thing, when it isn't? Uh, what is the source of political power? Is it is everything coming from the king who has been ordained by God? Or is the people the source of the power? Maybe some other. So basically, we are in a situation where there's a, you know, a great proliferation of theories all over Europe. And of course, this also touches uh, England. Various uh, people come with uh, uh, you know, new ideas, old ideas, renewed ideas. And one of these actually was James Stuart, uh, who was the King of Scotland. And in 1603, when Queen Elizabeth of England died, he became King also of England because he was the cousin uh, thrice removed from Elizabeth. Now, the problem was that James grew up in Scotland, which had a very different political theory and 
and political system. And not only that, he was probably the best read king in English history and maybe ever. He really read a lot, he taught a lot, and he, he wrote several books. One of his books was named Basilicondoron, The Gift of the King. And basically he wanted to say that laws and government and everything like that is a gift of the king. The king gets his, his power, his authority directly from God. And then he basically he decides everything, you know, by God's will. And the fact that there are laws and there's a parliament, there are gifts. He's, he's just out of his goodness, he's giving that. But he can, if he gives that out of his will, he can also take it back. You know, this theory uh, naturally found, I would say most English found, uh, found it very troublesome, thinking that the common law, the traditions, the parliament isn't worth anything. So James was really careful not to bring these philosophical theories that he, you know, that he put in a, in a, in a book. Uh, he, didn't, he never uttered them explicitly in parliament or in any formal document. But everyone was very suspicious that this is actually what he believes. So this, in a, in a way, poisoned the whole political atmosphere in England, you know, making uh, every move or counter move by parliament, by the, by the king, by the government, look like some slippery slope towards some kind of authoritarian or absolutist rule. So now before we move on to Selden and the role that he plays in parliament, so parallel to this track, there's an extraordinary intellectual and religious phenomenon that begins taking place in the wake of the Reformation, which is this sort of engagement or re-engagement with Jewish traditions, particularly by non-Jews, by Christians. So can you explain, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but just to set the stage here. So Selden, who's going to be in, in many ways the climax of this tradition, what does he step into, right? What is the path that Christian Europe takes to engaging with Jewish texts in the wake of the Reformation? Okay, so basically the Reformation claimed that the religious path of the Roman Catholic Church, some way along the road from Jesus to the 15th century, somewhere Christianity lost its direction. And the question, of course, was when, you know, what part of the Christian tradition is acceptable to Protestants and what is a popish invention, if you want, in, in, the, in their terms. So naturally, this created a need to look at the sources and to argue about them, the sources being you know, church tradition, the church fathers, but also the Bible itself. Now, up to that point, in the Catholic Church, which, which was all of Western Europe, the, the Bible and its ideas were, in a way, translated through the church. The church was the only authoritative commentator of what's written in the Bible. And what the Pope says uh, goes. That's it. Now, Protestants started trying to read the Bible. One of the arguments was, are bishops really ordained? Are uh, these laws really biblical or are they innovations? And this, of course, meant that people needed to learn Latin and Greek and especially Hebrew to read the Hebrew Bible because for Christians, the, their sources were the Hebrew Bible itself, then the New Testament, which, which was written in Greek, and both the Hebrew Bible and the the New Testament were translated into Latin. So these three languages were the, uh, the languages in which these, these discussions and the, this thinking went by with. So the problem naturally wasn't with Greek or Latin because th th those languages were familiar, at least to educated people. The case with Hebrew was 
it was far less familiar. So there was an, an explosion really of people learning Hebrew, looking for Hebrew texts, understanding things like Hebrew grammar. Of course, the, you know, the Bible is written in different styles. I mean, some parts of poetry, some are prose near the end of the Bible. Some are Hebrew books with uh, some Aramaic content. So in order to, to master this, you need to learn Hebrew, not only in a technical sense, but really to, to understand many aspects of it. And indeed, more, more than that, many people who got to read the Bible found that the vocabulary was unclear to them. There were words that even the, the dictionaries didn't, there are words that have their meaning is unclear and sometimes they have five meanings, which is intended in this sentence and so on. And so many of them also started to go and try to use Hebrew sources, post-biblical sources, like the Talmud, like uh, various uh, Jewish sages, like Maimonides and Rashi and others who wrote about the Bible. So these Christians went reading Maimonides or Rashi and trying to understand from them what the meaning of this passage was, even though the, the meaning was you know, commented by Jews, those Christians needed it in order to understand the meaning. Many, many terms, many words, many terms of phrases were used to justify religious and political ideas. So there was a, a real need uh, to understand it. And one of the greatest achievements, really, of the, of the 17th century, of King James's uh, rule in England, was the, the massive effort to translate the Bible into English, the King James Bible, who, right, it's like, with Shakespeare, it's classic English, if you want. And so at this period, we are talking about, there were uh, scores of scholars arguing about, you know, every second sentence in the Bible and uh, basically uh, translating it directly from the Hebrew into English, the first authoritative English Bible ever. There were previous efforts, but they were not recognized by the English church. So this was really the period when the English the, themselves are looking at the, at the Hebrew Bible and turning it into English, if you want. So I want to now step into Selden, because this is where it's kind of Selden comes onto the stage. And I want to get into his ideas in a little bit when he engages with Thomas Hobbes and he tackles the, the challenge of political orders founded on reason. But first, let's talk a little bit about Selden himself. So John Selden is a fascinating character. John Milton of Paradise Lost fame, right? The the person who tortured us all in high school when we were kids. And then hopefully when we get a little bit older, we come to appreciate him as one of the great epic writers of all time. Also one of the great political thinkers of all time, one of the preeminent defenders of republics. All of which is to say John Milton, reasonably smart guy. John Milton says of Selden, he's the chief of learned men reputed in this land in England. And you could kind of, as you do and as, as others who've written about Selden are able to do like in the first, you know, page or two of a book, you can just create a list of all of the most brilliant, eminent, distinguished personalities in England and abroad in the 17th century, all of whom seem to be, as much as they agree, disagree about everything, all of whom agree about one thing, which that John Selden was smarter than all of them, right? So John Selden is this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Englishman. And he also becomes what I suppose I'd describe as, I don't even think there's a question about this. He becomes the most rabbinically learned Gentile in history, 
where does Selden come from and how does he engage with, with Jewish texts and how does he start on this journey? Well, so you couldn't uh, find a less promising candidate to begin with for someone becoming the, you know, the most learned non-Jew in probably, maybe in history, probably in history about Jewish matters than John Selden because he was born in a small village in uh, southern England and he was the son of a farmer and he, he was very smart from a, from a young age. So they sent him to Oxford, but being a philosopher at that time and in this time too, isn't such a good <laughs> way to, live, to to make a living. My father was a philosophy major in college. He had a, I think he had a sign when he was younger. It said philosopher by appointment only. Exactly. You know? <laughs> So uh, after about t- two years in Oxford, he didn't graduate. He went to uh, what was regarded as the third university. It's na- called the Inns of Court. These were like training schools for lawyers. At that time, the, the system of learning was very strange. They didn't really have you know, a regular curriculum. They had some lectures about this, the history of the English law. And you had to attend these lectures, which were like, maybe two times a week. And except for that, you were basically free to do whatever you want with your time. So, um, you know, many people went to court and to to hear cases and they learned by themselves. But this was actually a great opportunity for a young and, uh, you know, eager mind like Selden. Uh, He was really voracious in every direction. And he, he became like the assistant of a guy named uh, uh, Robert Cotton, who uh, interestingly had the largest library in England at the time. And his library eventually became one of the sources for the British Library today. So Cotton, you know, he was buying books and manuscripts in all kinds of strange places. The monasteries, monasteries had been abolished by the Reformation. So all kinds of old Anglo-Saxon texts from churches were going around in various places. He was looking for them and, and transcribing them. So someone probably told him, you know, there's this guy in, uh, you know, this bright guy at the Inns of Court. It's called the Inner Temple. He's, uh, he's looking for some way, you know, to have an income. So maybe you, you, you'll make him as your assistant. And so basically, Selden got, by chance, basically, a free ticket to the best library at that time in England. It, it was a perfect fit because it was basically, he couldn't find a book he didn't want to read. And it's uh, calculated that eventually he knew to some level something like 23 or 24 languages. So if you can think about knowing so many languages and some of them, interestingly enough, he basically taught himself. One interesting example is you could learn Hebrew to some level in England, even in university, but it was a very basic level. So he continued to study Hebrew and he started to uh, ask for a Hebrew grammar, grammar book from abroad and so on. And with time, if you read the Jewish sources, you find that many, many words and sentences are actually not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. So he said to himself, I have to know also Aramaic. Now that Aramaic uh, it's a Hebrew Aramaic used in the Talmud and so so forth. It's not the regular Aramaic that Arameans spoke. It's a, it's a it's a literary language. And somehow Selden, who never apparently met a Jew in his life, I mean, certainly an open Jew or a Jew who was 
knowledgeable in the law, succeeded in actually teaching himself Talmudic Aramaic to a level where he could understand pretty much most of what he was reading, which is you know, incredible to think about it. It's extraordinary. Exactly. So, you know, all kinds of languages, he tried even to decipher, he got a manuscript of some Aztec code and he tried to decipher it. It didn't succeed, but <laughs> no one would succeed for hundreds of years. So, right. If anything, learning kind of like Hebrew and Aramaic melange of the Talmud is like in many ways, I mean, unimaginable accomplishment. It's really difficult. Early on, everyone in, in England who knew Hebrew knew each other. We're talking about some hundreds, a few hundred people. That's it. And early on, everyone understood that this guy, this young guy named Selden, is like way out. His Hebrew, his understanding of Hebrew, of other languages, uh, of Aramaic and Arabic and so on is fantastic. And he could use all these different languages also to inform him on each other. And it got to the point where he was asking for books in Hebrew or on Hebrew subjects from abroad. Even they were sending him books from France, from Germany and uh, further back. And it got to the point where there was a, a German guy of, uh, he was actually a Jewish convert to Christianity who had a trove of uh, Hebrew books, uh, which uh, Selden was interested in. And they had to correspond because this guy was in Germany and Selden was in England. So this guy got the messages, Selden is looking for these books. And he writes to him, now, this guy didn't know Latin and he didn't know English. And he didn't know if, if Selden knows German. He, he did, but <laughs> this guy doesn't know. So he's thinking, how can I write to him? So he wrote him a letter in Hebrew. <laughs> and in this letter, he calls him our, our Rabbi Selden. He says, Moreno, Har- Moreno Harav, Rabbeinu Selden. <laughs> exactly. Our, our great teacher and Rabbi Selden. And, and the fact is that Selden could read it, actually. <laughs> So you see, it's, it's really, I would say, incredible, you know, to think that in 1620 something, there's this kind of correspondence. And Selden eventually amassed the largest Hebrew and Jewish library in England, which eventually became the basis for the Bodleian Library in Oxford, which has many of these volumes to this day. So he eventually becomes one of the most prominent and sought after politicians in England during the English Civil War. He's being courted both by the royalist side to be the Lord Keeper of the Seals, as well as by Cromwell to you know, draft an incipient English constitution. So he's being courted by everybody because he's so unbelievably prominent. This person, John Selden, makes his name writing extremely learned books on a variety of subjects, whether it's the history of idolatry, the history of tithes, how to make oaths and promises on natural law and and traditional law. And he's drawing in the beginning in part and eventually primarily on Jewish rabbinic sources, which is remarkable. Now, the chief challenge or issue that Selden takes up during his lifetime and where he becomes quite well known is in trying to figure out how, as you said earlier, to found a political regime in the wake of the challenges of the wars of religion, right? So you have a European continent that's soaked in blood by this point, or that kind of corpses strewn about, and not just from the plague, right? People are killing each other. And you have political philosophers trying to figure out how do we create a stable political regime in the face of of so many people and rulers and aristocrats and kings 
who fundamentally disagree with each other seemingly about everything. And you have on the one side, you have people like Thomas Hobbes and Hugo Grotius, who in different ways from each other, but fundamentally are trying to found a political regime in one way, in the basis of reason. And Selden is taking a very different tack. So can you talk, first of all, a little bit about what's sort of the the Hobbesian response to the, the challenge of the wars of religion? And then where does Selden come in? So basically, because the wars of religion you know, are ravaging Europe, and clearly in England itself, there was some kind of cold war of religion, meaning it wasn't a war, but there were really internal strains that were getting uh, worse and worse. Within the English church, between a more, I would say, Puritan wing that said, no, we're too close to the Catholics. We have to break free and become, you know, Calvinists like uh, in Geneva or in Scotland. And another more traditionalist wing that was uh, saying, no, we should uh, remain where we are. We are the middle way between uh, Lutheranism and Catholicism and so on and so forth. So people could see that these uh, religious struggles were leading to the possibility that the same uh, wars that were taking part in Europe may take part in England. And the issue was always on what is a political system founded. As I noted before, some thinkers like James, King James himself, Robert Filmer and others, you know, tried to say that there's a natural hierarchy by which the king is the source of all authority and law and power. And there were various problems with this theory, but it had its... Uh, its power in it was very simple and clear. So many people started to look for alternative theories that were as simple and as clear. They were saying to themselves, look, if we base our political theory on the Bible or on God, the problem is that there are so many disagreements at the moment that we are afraid that if we base it on uh, uh, some kind of uh, religious uh, values or ideas, then, you know, if it's too Catholic, the Protestant said, I won't abide by these rules. And, and vice versa, right. So basically, Grotius and Hobbes and other thinkers try to come up with uh, a political philosophical system that is based on reason, basically on what every man everywhere supposedly can derive from himself. Meaning, I'm sitting in a room and it doesn't matter if I'm English or Chinese or some guy in Peru and out of my own head, I can uh, arrive at some general principles of society and uh, government and construct in a way that will be understood by anyone, everyone else. And such were the attempts by various thinkers. You know, there was a Spanish school and there were other ways of thinking. The most famous among them was, was Grotius, who created a a kind of proto-liberal theory. The problem basically was that this rule of reason, which he created, assuming that people agreed and understood it, the still was the problem of obedience, meaning what will motivate me to actually carry out these dictates of reason. One, one example is I can understand with my reason that it's, it's uh, a bad thing to steal, but then I, got, I get the opportunity and no one sees me. Will I actually keep to it? Now, some people will and some people won't, but the point is that people are very, very easily untie themselves, meaning everything that you can tie yourself with, you can also untie yourself with. So basically, you know, we, we know that from, even from our own, our own lives, we make a decision and then we start to say, you know, I'm going on a diet. And from this day on, I'm, I'm going to eat 1000 calories a day and that's it. And then 
But you know, I, I, I had a, today I had a bad day. So yeah, they, you know, this piece of cake, hey, it's only 200 calories. You know, right? Because actually no one can, can make us do something we do not want if we, we are the ones who decide on it. So basically Selden and other thinkers said the meaning of a law, the meaning of obligation is only if, if there is a some kind of punishment for not keeping it, right? If, if you do something wrong, there's some kind of punishment. And this punishment can really be only from outside of you. You cannot really punish or absolve yourself. So uh, Hobbes' theory basically said, okay, so let's see what's the thing that everyone cares about most of all. And he said, everyone is afraid of pain and naturally of dying. So he created a theory that uses reason, but is uh, anchored in fear. Every individual's fear of death, of uh, punishment. And so basically, he created a whole theory where all power is given to the ruler, and it can be a king, but it ha- doesn't have to be a king. It's, it can be some kind of, of a council, like parliament and so on. This uh, government has all power because its role is to keep all of the individuals in, in our society in line to keep the rules. So basically, he called this book Leviathan, a biblical, mythical beast, like the, the strongest uh, animal on earth. Hobbes gave his uh, book this name because he meant that government should be this Leviathan, this a god on earth. Because he said the problem is that uh, with uh, various religious opinions, uh, it's very hard to make people follow religious rules because of various religious disagreements. So the best thing is to create a political philosophy which is based only on you know, the material world. Even argue that God himself is material in order to, I would say, forestall claims that he was an atheist. Because very soon, naturally, people said he's a materialist. He only believes in, in matter and, and he's an atheist. Now, clearly, I think that to every reasonable man, the problem with Hobbes' philosophy is that people really do not live only for themselves. We, we know, I do, I know that I do, but I would say that most people don't live only for themselves. I live also for my children and also for, even in a sense, my friends, my family, my extended family, but certainly for my children. And also I have different values which I am willing to forego material benefits in order to stand by those values. So, so for Hobbes, no, the only reason for you to go to war, for example, was if someone tries to kill you, so you're trying to defend yourself. But for, for a normal person, naturally, even if he can run away, but his family will be in danger, a normal person will say, no, I will defend them. I will try to defend them. I will fight to defend them. So in this sense, Hobbesian psychology is abnormal because I, I'm not saying that there are no people that think only about themselves, but really... A normal society doesn't function that way. And so many people commented on the problems with the Hobbesian theory of this extreme individualism where individual consent is the basis for everything. The problem was, of course, that if you don't accept Hobbes or uh, divine rights like James and so on, what do you have? What's the enforcement mechanism? Exactly. You know, what system of values is there and, and what do you have as an alternative theory? So where does Selden come in and how does rabbinic literature kind of become the anchor of his political theory? So I would say that Selden's life project, in a sense, started before he was exposed to, to rabbinical theory. From a very young age, he was a very eminent lawyer. 
when he was fairly young, he was already reputed as the one of the greatest common lawyers living. He knew, you know, someone would say to him, the law is this or that, and he, we could quote some law from 300 years ago that says, no, you're wrong, this is, no, this way, this kind of person. And in general, he was uh, finding out that as an effect of these ideas by King James, by people like, like uh, Grotius and later Hobbes, uh, more and more people were saying, you know, actually, the common law is, a, is, a, is this tradition of ideas and of laws, but maybe we can cut to the chase and have new kind of political arrangements, new, new kind of laws that are derived, again, from reason for the king and so on. And forth, and forth. So Selden, he, he was looking... He's one of the great defenders of tradition. Exactly. So he, he was trying to justify tradition. And the, the problem was, with what most common lawyers and most people in England who like tradition, they had like a circular argument, meaning the common law has worked great, you know, for a thousand years, and uh, it's English law, and we're English, so it's perfect for us, and that's it. You know, so for many people, uh, <laughs> that was enough. But Selden saw that since in the universities and in political circles, and of course in the government, and even, you know, the king are entertaining other ideas, this uh, kind of argument that common law is good because it is, it, it's there, so it's good. It's, you know, won't, won't hold water when it's under pressure. And it really came under pressure because uh, suddenly King James and uh, Francis Bacon and other people started saying things like, you know, yeah, the common law says so-and-so, but actually maybe these words can mean something else. We don't really care what's written in Magna Carta. Who cares what happened 400 years ago, right? We the, the king back then gave it to gave this charter. Our king can gave another charter can 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 take that old charter and throw it away, whatever. So there are really strong forces pressing on the political system in England, uh, trying to uh, put in question these traditions of the common law and basically of parliament and on, and the mixed government that existed in England where there was a, a place for the king, but also for the House of Lords and the commons. So Selden was looking for a theory that would justify tradition, but not only in its own terms, but also in universal terms, meaning a theory that is all, not only good for England, because naturally something that is only good for, for you, uh, when there's some change, some innovation, the question is, maybe we throw all that old stuff away. And so you could say, you know, it was a stroke of luck that he got thrown into jail. It was, <laughs> a, it was acquainted with Jewish tradition before that, but he didn't really dive deep into it before that. And also, uh, he actually, uh, you know, the fact that he asked for the Talmud was a trick because <laughs> he was interested in it, but they told him only one book. Now, the Talmud is... Technically one book. <laughs> theoretically one book, but it's, it's like a whole library. They said, you can have one book. He said, sure, the Talmud from Westminster Library, and he got it, and... Uh, you know, the, uh, you, you could spend years and years reading it. So And boom, it's like 30, 40 books right there. <laughs> exactly. So he really sat down and, uh, you know, dived into it. And he found in, in the Talmud, basically, the theory he was looking for to justify traditional government, traditional society, traditional law. Basically, he justified, he came to a theory that justified Jewish tradition and English tradition and every tradition, basically, according to this theory that he found in the Talmud, and eventually when he got out of jail, 
he wrote, he continued basically from this moment on until the end of his life. This was his main uh, intellectual endeavor. During the days, he was uh, a political actor in parliament and so on. And at night, he would come to his chamber and uh, study the Talmud, study other Jewish sages and write gigantic books. Now, it's interesting when you take one of his books, it's not actually written in English, it's written in Latin, which was the language of learning at that time, but one or two pages, you look at it and it's a section on, let's say marriage. So we would say, you know, this is in the, in Roman law, so this is in Latin, and then there's something from the New Testament, he would quote the original Greek, not, not a translation. And then he says, but you know, in the Bible it says, and he quotes on the Bible, then he says, but the Talmud says this thing, but Maimonides says, and it, every one of these things is in another language. Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, and so on and so forth. So basically, you look at the book, and it gives you a translation, but basically, it's it's like uh, having a whole library in front of you. That's that, that's the way he wrote. You, using this trove he found in this Westminster Talmud. And by the way, interestingly, this Talmud was owned by the uh, Westminster Library, the, the library of the of, of the Bishop of Westminster um, Church. Now, eventually, I won't go into the whole story, but there was a Jewish uh, collector who had a book that the Church of England wanted, wanted really wanted. So he gave them the, that book and he got from them those uh, volumes of the Talmud, which Selden used. A few years later, uh, another collector, also Jewish, brought it. And now it's in New York. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was uh, published that uh, there's a businessman, philanthropist named Leon Black, who bought it, and it's somewhere in his library. Wow. And uh, the book that Selden used is uh, now in the U.S., uh, owned by uh, this uh, guy. That, that's crazy. So Selden really thinks that the seven Noahide laws are very important. So the seven Noahide laws is a is a tradition that the Talmud, wherein the Talmud derives that there are certain laws that all humans are expected to abide by. The Israelites have their own covenant with God, which includes the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other and and then the subsequent rest of laws that are in the the Pentateuch, the rest of the Bible that the Talmud and subsequent Jewish law elaborates upon. But the laws that are given to all human beings, right, all descendants of Noah, which is, you know, drawing upon the biblical story after the flood, they have sort of seven laws. And Selden, in his book on natural law and what he believes to sort of be the basis of political of a political regime going forward, he actually organizes the book according to these different Noahide laws. So how do these laws and how do these traditions manifest in Selden's writing? Why does he think they're important and how does he deploy them? So let's start with this. Uh, Selden believes that basically you cannot really have a moral and philosophical system and indeed a legal system that is not based on some idea of a metaphysical justice. Meaning if people are only Hobbesians, if they're only materialists, or even if they're only liberals and they do not believe that there is something outside of, of this world, there are many instances where might will make right. Meaning... Let's say that you're, you know, uh, struggling against someone who's weaker than you, and you can simply crush him. Why wouldn't you? 
So basically, how do you make laws that are not simply helping the strongest? We know that some people will all, always be weak on this earth, and we all want to believe in, on some level that there is justice, but we see around us that in the world, there is injustice also. So Selden believed that basically in all human societies that somehow were civilized, even pagan societies, there was this idea that there is some system of universal justice. And what, what does universal justice mean? It means that there is some providential authority that meets out justice. And this justice is not necessarily only for you now. What it means is, we can find it a lot in the, in the Bible and not only in the Bible, that a lot of times we see that some misdeed is done at a certain period and uh, there is a promise that it will be uh, eventually you know, providentially fixed. Sometimes it's on a personal level, sometimes it's on a larger level, sometimes even on a national level. The uh, clearest example is the idea in the Bible that the exile of the Jews will be providentially, uh, eventually providentially uh, terminated by uh, God. So Selden writes somewhere in his books that, that some people believe that Jews have really, are not a people, they're not a nation anymore, and they, they don't have a law because they don't have a government. So, so their laws are voluntary, meaning basically if they keep it, they can, they can keep them. If not, they won't keep them. So are there really laws? Maybe they're just a hobby, okay? So he says, clearly they are a law. And why are they a law? Because the Jews that keep these laws, they believe that we, they will get a recompense for keeping those laws eventually, you know, on a personal level, that even if they don't thrive, their family will thrive. And eventually that the nation will be restored to their, their land and their country. And he says, this idea exists in basically every society that wants to believe that the fact that there's some uh, bully now that can crush someone else, th that isn't right. The only reason by which we can say that isn't right is to think that there is some kind of system of justice that is beyond uh, human action and comprehension, if you want. So starting out from this idea, he looked for a system that will explain it, but not regarding only its own believers. The problem so to speak, with Christianity or Islam and so on, is that in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, there was a central belief that there is a different morality for people of our religion and other people's, meaning there's no real universal morality. There is, uh, now, even in Christianity, there were those who argued that worthy people before Christ, like- uh, Plato, Aristotle. Plato, exactly. Those people could go, to heaven or some level or some kind of, they weren't punished to hell, let's say. Right. But the, the, the system, you know, the, the moral system, uh, certainly after Christianity appeared, was if you're not Christian, it, th there's no point in even uh, having a moral discussion with you. And uh, Seldom was looking for a system that uh, is based on a belief in God, but is not relevant only to some specific religion or sect or group. And he argued that, one, this was found in the Jewish tradition. He said that clearly it's even found in the Bible itself, because it's a, it's a famous argument of, 
of Jewish tradition, why start the Bible with the Genesis? Not, why not start it with Abraham, right? And you have indeed in, in the Bible books that deal with morality that has nothing to do with Jews. For example, the book, the book of Job. There are no Jews in the book of Job, right? Uh, you could say that to some level also about the book of Jonah. It's not, it's not really about Judaism or, or the Jewish people at all. So I can give other examples, but you get the idea. And certainly further on in the Talmud and other sages, the, this issue was seriously discussed. And Selden said, I, John Selden, have, have read really everything there is in uh, Christian traditions and in uh, Greek philosophy and the uh, Roman philosophy and the Arab philosophy, whatever. And for him, this was like a literal statement. I've read everything. <laughs> exactly. Now, if there was someone who, who re- basically read every book existing, the closest anyone ever came to that was Selden. And he said, basically, there is this tradition, within Jewish tradition, there is this school of thought which is agreed upon by all Jewish sages, meaning he he gave the example of, you know, in Greek philosophy. Right, you have the Platonics and you have the Stoics, the Peripatetics. Everyone has, even within the Platonics, the the divergences are great. Are huge. And uh, naturally there were Christian Platonics and pagan Platonics. And so on, you know, and you can go, go with every philosopher, old and new. And he said, but within the Jewish tradition, this idea of the seven Rahide, there are these agreements in Jewish tradition, but not about this. This is something that you can, you can see that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish sages discussed and developed and agreed upon. So he said, this is clearly something that the Jewish tradition agrees upon. And he even said that the Christian tradition he clearly thought that within the New Testament and the early church fathers, this true tradition of the, of the seven Noahide laws informed their, their ideas. They knew about it and they used it. He brings some examples of that. So clearly he believed that it can be used not only by Jews, but by Christians and indeed everyone, but certainly by Christians because it's part of the tradition. He brought the places where he, he thought these ideas are reflected in the New Testament and the church fathers. And basically his idea is this. There is actually one, strictly speaking, natural law, and then there are seven divine injunctions. Uh, one natural law is the basic understanding which we can expect from every person in every society. Even if we go now to some island in the Pacific, at that time, no one ever from Europe ever got there, we should expect people to stand by this natural law. And if they don't, it, they're not really a society. And it's very simple. It's, you have to keep your promises, basically, because he thought this is something that is a society cannot function without that. He said, even a society of robber, robbers, right, they, they split what they rob according to some rules. But if they cheat each other very soon, the, the, it will break down. So a society cannot, no, no human society really can exist without this principle, which is natural. He says, every society, you can expect it to go to this principle by itself. And it, he thought that this principle itself in order to really keep it, you have to believe that there is some kind of providence. That somebody will punish you for not keeping your promise. Exactly, because in many cases, you can just stab your, you know, the other guy, and that's it. And the, the only reason not to stab the other guy is to think that, you know, if you believe in God, God, or he, he said for the Greeks and the Romans, they believed fate or whatever, or justice, but they said even they have this vague idea because... Clearly, a society cannot function if people uh, say, yes, I will keep my promises, but only 
as long as no one ca- catches me. So this is the, the framework. And apart from this, there are the seven Noahide laws. Now, the seven Noahide laws in the Jewish tradition, there are laws or injunctions, not, not laws in the sense they're more akin to laws of nature. You know, Selden didn't think that there is a, any society that actually functions only according to these laws, because those shall not steal is not because you have to decide what's property, what does it mean to steal? If you steal a cherry, is it the same? Right? So basically, these are more than all of the seven principles, I would say. And uh, according to the Jewish tradition, these principles were given to mankind at creation, meaning to Adam, and again, after the flood. Now, he says that what happens is that all societies, all these ideas were tra- transmitted to all societies, but with time, all societies forgot them to, to one extent or the other, meaning they forgot the original rules. But he said most societies have these rules inside their own laws, meaning if you go to, a, let's say, to China, you will find that in China also there is an injunction against murder and against theft and so on. So he believed that all societies within their own laws, some more perfectly than others, have some, some remains of these traditions. No, he says even the Jews themselves forgot these traditions because... Because they're not in the Bible. Exactly. In the Bible, they got the Jewish law. Now he says they're not in the Bible and they're not mentioned in the Bible, everyone. So the sages reconstructed, if you want, these, these principles from the Bible but they're not explicit anyway. So the idea of the sages, which, which Selden accepted is, these seven principles are in the Bible as they are in Christian societies because of the Bible. They needed to be derived. Exactly. So basically, he believed that the Jewish sages derived these laws from the Bible because they were such an important tradition of study. Meaning, he said, we, we, we don't have any other tradition where for hundreds of years, people are learning the same text and trying to extract the universal principles from this particular text. He says, the rabbis didn't have to do it. They could have said, who cares? We have the Bible for us, for the Jews, everyone else, right. you know, who cares about them? But clearly that, that was not what they thought. And they have these long discussions where generation after generation, I mean, it's not, it says the, the seven uh, Noahide principles weren't discovered by some rabbi, you know, one night he saw a vision and that's it. There are discussions, and does this mean this? And are these the seven principles? Maybe there are eight, maybe there are six. And so you see that it was like a long discovery. It says the Jewish tradition is built like, like any tradition, right? Level up a level, up a layer, up a layer, up a layer. So clearly it says, you, you, we can see when you read the, the Talmud, which is made itself of layers, and the later uh, commentators, we can see the layers themselves. This rabbi says this, and a generation later, another rabbi says, he was right, but this point should be elucidated. And, and uh, for hundreds of years, you have this. And because of this uh, unbroken tradition, he says, this light was kept going and got to the point where we in Europe, but whoever wants to, all over the world, recover this light, right? Anyone who wants. And this view basically sees these seven universal laws or universal principles as those of any, what we would call today, uh, any immoral society. This means, for instance, that if you get to, to some place, you know, far away, where people are have all kinds of strange traditions of themselves, let's say that they use salt 
for a coin. That's, there's no problem. That's the tradition. That's fine. But if they have human sacrifice, you, you have the right to stop that because that's, that is against a universal injunction. So Selden basically saw this as the framework for a moral society everywhere. But the point was for him was that this framework is too thin to actually no society can function out of that only. You know, it's like having some kind of framework for a building, but if you go into that building, it will rain on your head because there, there's only this framework. There's no, there's no building. And so every society builds its own building around this framework. And every society building, it's building differently. Some societies have, you know, uh, different laws for different strokes for different folks, right? So it says uh, this theory means that does not mean that every society has to have the same law. Far from it. Around this basic framework, everyone should actually build his own laws. So his understanding of the, the excellence of Jewish law for Jews didn't mean that he said... Should be Jews, right? Right? Or he said, our, our English law is great for the English. We shouldn't export it to France. It, it won't work because he said different nations, different characters, different places have different rules. So he said a nation of uh, uh, moderate law-abiding people like the English can live with freer laws than the French. The French are basically hot-headed and get angry very, you know, and, and so, so they, they need stronger rules there, over there in France. So I, I want, just by way of closing, because what, what, what ends up happening, what Selden does, as you've narrated so magnificently over the course of this talk, is is... What Selden does is he sees the need to create a political regime that can survive massive human diversity and, and in some cases, like contrary human diversity, wars of religion. At the same time, he sees that the available alternatives to that, whether it's pure reason or whether it's, you know, King James's theory of, well, just the king gets to do whatever he wants because God says so, is short circuiting the strengths of, of the Western political tradition. Namely, it's it's tradition. It's common law. It's, it's generations and generations of investing and in actually study and learning and each people kind of bringing their unique strengths and heritage to the table. And in that respect, as I, I was preparing for this, as I was listening to you, I, I kind of came across a really magnificent line. It's one of my favorite lines from a, a book by, by my teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, the former chief rabbi of England. I wanted to read it to you just because it seemed to me so on the money for what Selden's do for what Selden's articulating Rabbi Sachs in a book called the dignity of difference from 2003. He has the following line. He says, God, the creator of humanity, having made a covenant with all humanity, then turns to one people and commands it to be different, teaching humanity to make space for differences. God may at times be found in the human other, the one not like us. Biblical monotheism is not the idea that there is one God and therefore one gateway to his presence. To the contrary, it's the idea that the unity of God, the oneness of God, is to be found in the diversity of creation. As Jews, we believe that God has made a covenant with a singular people, but that does not exclude the possibility of other peoples, cultures, and faiths finding their own relationship with God within the shared frame of the Noahide laws. I mean, to me, in a nutshell, that's Selden. And that is where Selden's incredible relevance for the world in 2022 shines forth. And I, I, I really, I'm, I'm tremendously excited to be able to bring 
word of this remarkable Western thinker whose work stands alongside the greats of the tradition, certainly in terms of reputation, Hobbes, Grotius, Locke, uh, John Milton and beyond, but in terms of, of depth and originality and, and innovativeness, I think it exceeds them all. So, so Ophir, thank you so much for joining us today. This is an absolutely enlightening conversation. Great. Amazing. So I kind of already did my moment of zen, as it were, uh, at the end in the interview with that quote from Rabbi Sachs. I was just so inspired by Ophir's incredible tour de force in telling us about this absolutely transformative thinker in the history of Western political thought. Listen, if we want to found a Western society for the future that's going to be resilient, that's going to flourish, that's going to be morally exciting, I think the best thing that we can do is, like Selden, turn to the wisdom of the Bible, turn to the wisdom of the Jewish tradition, and bringing our diverse strengths here on earth to serve the one God above, let's partner together and build a future that we can all be proud of. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome! Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, and give us a rating! Five stars Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 